If you have a Bible, turn to uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 3. If you're looking at one of the Bibles provided, it's on page uh, 1712. Our text for this morning is uh, verses 12 through 16, but I'm going to read a little bit more of the chapter, beginning at verse 2 and and on through 16. Apostle Paul is writing, he says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of God stands forever. You pray with me. Oh Lord, we have come here this day to be renewed and refreshed. To hear the story of your gospel told and retold through the narrative of the worship service and the liturgy read in your word, as is so beautifully done here and applied to our lives. Will you open the eyes of our hearts to see and behold, to believe and act upon these words of truth that are your words? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
We started the year, if you remember, with a resolution, which was to know God better and to apply that knowledge to every area of our lives, of my life, of your life, each of our lives. To know God better and to apply that knowledge to every area of our lives. I've never been one for making resolutions, but I made some this year and even made one for us as a church and followed through with it to a large degree. And the teaching that we had for the for the uh, for the whole year, we started off in the book of Colossians, looking at the the genuine heartfelt affection that Paul was promoting, prompting the people of Colossae and that region toward and that God is prompting and calling all of us to, that we would not just know about God, but that we would genuinely know God and fall deeper in love with Him every day of our lives. And that that knowledge would so inculcate, incarnate in our lives that we would be changed, transformed, and that that knowledge, that intimate application would, would change the ways we're in relationship with other people, change the ways we approach our life and and work and view even the restoration of our life in the midst of various failings, trials, persecutions, and joys and excitement. And then later in the year, we looked at the book of Proverbs, which was an interesting study. It's the first time I've ever studied Proverbs uh, in depth myself. Proverbs digs deep into the life, the, the, the very real kind of nuts and bolts of life. And it speaks truth in ways that are oftentimes uncomfortable and calls us to an obedience and an active life of faith and work, hard work that is difficult to attain. We contrasted that with the world around us. And the world that is constantly calling us to work harder and to perform better and comparing us to other people and telling us we can do anything our hearts desire and yet we experience over and over the failures in our lives, the desires of our hearts that don't oftentimes line up with either our performance or our abilities and skills. These are not foreign concepts to God. They're not foreign concepts to the people of the Bible. It's interesting that in one place in Scripture, God points out to us that He calls the people who are not wise in this world, people who are not powerful in this world, to be not only servants in His kingdom, but leaders in His kingdom. Jesus demonstrates this in the life of the apostles, His disciples who had no nobility in their birth, no particular theological education, It's the Apostle Paul, interestingly, that uses the words of not calling those who are wise in this world when he's writing to those in Corinth, the place that was very much like our culture and loving those who were gifted and skilled and and powerful and wealthy. Idolize those people. and, And yet Paul reminds them of God's calling to his people that is not based on our abilities, our skill set or our wealth, or our power, or our appearance, or even our discipline. But it is based on something far more powerful, and that is God's work in our lives. 
It's based on something far more powerful, and that's God's assurances of His salvation, more than just salvation, His love and affection for us. That is based not on our good works, not on our performance or our skill set, not on the nobility of our birth, but on His steadfast character. And in so doing, he takes us back to the very beginning of creation, the very beginning of our history with him when he made Adam and Eve in humanity. And he said, these, these two are like me in a way that nothing else in all of creation is like me. These human beings bear my image, and I made them to be in relationship with me. There's nothing like these human beings, and he has put, God has put his love on humanity, not based, not based on performance or appearance, but based on his character and his calling. Now, isn't it interesting with all that background context that Paul would be one who has all the right skills, capabilities, performance, Obedience. Paul was one who had reason to boast. And so whether you're standing here or sitting here today on the side of feeling like a failure, an abject uh, disappointment to many people around you or to God himself, or feeling like the past year has been one of success and power and, 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 and accomplishment, like Paul, the call The call this morning, as we look back, the title of the sermon this morning is looking back and looking forward. As we look back over the past year and we're prone to look at all the failures we've had, the call this morning, the reminder of this text this morning, before we set New Year's resolutions and look at some of those next week, and maybe you're doing that right now, the call call here is to look back and be reminded That God's love for you is based not at all on your performance over the past year. Not one bit is God's love and affection for you based on your performance over the past year. Paul says, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He just gave his list of his resume. He had all the performances. And then he says, I count them as but loss, as rubbish, compared to the surpassing knowledge of the love of Christ, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, the surpassing worth not of knowing about Jesus or about God or about the Bible, but knowing Christ Jesus himself. And he looks back on all of his accomplishments and he says they count as nothing. Now that doesn't mean that they weren't worth something. One of the toughest things, this interesting concept in the Bible is, is when, when statements 
like Jesus makes, if you don't hate your mother and your father and your, your brother and your sister and, and those around you, if you don't hate them, then you don't love me. These statements we want to write off simply as hyperbole. There's this exaggeration, a stretch goal for life, maybe. But these types of statements that are like this, counting all of those other things, those good things that Paul did, he was following the law, he was careful, he was uh, careful to, uh, to, to, to be zealous even for his faith, blameless under the law. These were in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, good things in God's eyes. And yet he says, I count them as rubbish, as trash, compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Similarly, as Jesus is saying, you hate those other things. He's comparative. He's, he's using comparative worth to describe the value of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, to knowing God himself. Jesus isn't calling us to hate our father and mother, but in comparison to loving God and the goodness that comes from loving God and the satisfaction that comes from having a genuine affection and knowing God, the love that we have for other people, even the, most, the closest people we have, looks like hate. Or at least that's what we're called to do in comparison to the good works that we do. The knowledge of knowing that God has loved us and knowing Christ Jesus is Lord and Savior. All of those other things are rubbish. And when we have that perspective, then we can come at the failings in life as in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already purposed, we can come at the failings of life with a different perspective, a radically different perspective than that of the world around us. Because when we fail in the world around us, oftentimes, not always, but the world's philosophy oftentimes is to cast us aside. And to say it's not worth investing in that person, in their work, in that person, in their relationship. Oftentimes, there is somebody else waiting in the wings to take your place. And so to be able to admit any kind of failing, to be able to confess our shortcomings, is to end hope in vocation or relationship or life, and so the world around us would have us put aside, stuff all of that stuff inside us, and carry a burden that we are unable to carry ourselves. But the truth, the worth of knowing Christ, of knowing the Lord of all of creation, God Himself is to set us free from the tyranny of that performance-based culture that we live in. It's not all that different from the Roman culture in which Paul is writing to others in. You know anything about the town or the city of Philippi? It's kind of a, an obscure place. It's not uh, one of those places that, that Paul is writing to or that uh, in, in some of his other letters in Asia Minor, um, 
where John the Apostle is writing in Revelation, that kind of that, that region around, uh, around Colossae and, and Ephesus. It was really well known. Philippi was kind of tucked away. It was surrounded by some mountains, and, and, and it wasn't really accessible. It had some success in its, uh, its, its uh, commerce, but it was, it was much smaller, and, uh, um, and, and it was kind of famous as being a military retirement place. Interesting. Soldiers would serve their term, and then, like many soldiers, they had a fairly early retirement. Uh, law enforcement is interesting in this way. It's a tough career. It's physically demanding on the body, and so many people take an early retirement. They, they would retire to Philippi. That was the culture of the place. You can imagine that military personnel, in particular, are prone to base their worth on their performance. On their strength. On their ability. On their victories. And so it's in this culture that the Apostle Paul, who has reason to boast, who has the resume to back it up, appeals not to his resume, but to the love of Christ Jesus and the salvation that he has won for them. And compares his own impressive resume to a heap of rubbish, trash. So that others around him would be freed to view their resume in comparison to what Christ has done for them. Equally in terms of rubbish. That doesn't mean that your work doesn't matter. And part of what we looked at for uh, three or four weeks in particular, but all of the book of, uh, uh, of, um, of Proverbs, was that our work does matter. Our vocational callings matter to God. The work we do that is unpaid work in our homes, around our communities, matters to God. But it's not the basis of our worth. And in fact, when we read this passage written to these retired soldiers and others, we see that our work, our view of work, our vision of work, our understanding of work is turned upside down and transformed. And Paul doesn't just leave it at this, uh, don't look at your resume and just look to God and, and don't do anything else. No, he, he uses very different language. He says, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you may have caught this. He uses this word press on a couple of times in this passage. Verse 12 also, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I, I work hard at this. I, I enter into it. And so this isn't just a call to let go and let God. This is a radically different call for us to step in, press into life. To engage our work in a new way, in a transformative way, because our lives have been transformed. At the failures of our past have no control over the optimism of our future. 
That God chooses to use us. And sometimes, oftentimes, actually always for all of us, but not everything in our life, sometimes, sometimes those failings actually stay with us through life as a way of reminding us that our love, or that God's love for us, is not based on our performance. Because we're constantly tempted to go back to this. To have some victory over some sin in our life or some desire in our life that we know is unhealthy or some activity in our lives. We have victory over it and we're instantly tempted toward pride rather than thanksgiving. We're instantly tempted to commit a new sin that takes us further away from God rather than to rejoice in the victory that God has given us. Again, Paul says in another place, God gave me this thorn in my side. And I prayed over and over again that God would take it away from me, but he didn't do it. And there's debate about whether that was some physical ailment or some sinful pattern that was habitual, continuing in his life. I don't think it's ultimately resolvable which one it is, but it's absolutely applicable as sometimes the sin patterns in our lives are there <coughs> are there because if we conquered them, we would be tempted toward pride in new ways that would draw us away from God. That doesn't mean that we love sin. It doesn't mean that we love the sin patterns. It doesn't mean that we, seek, we don't seek to, to do away with them. But sometimes God uses things unexpected to bring us salvation, to strengthen and encourage us in our faith, to deliver his people from slavery, from death by a famine, from all kinds of things. And so Paul, recognizing that his acceptance in God's eyes and his strength for what lies before him and even what fuels his relationship with God is is giving him a new strength to press into, to press on, to act, verse 15, in a way that is mature and not immature. To strive for the goal of achieving this prize, and that is the resurrection from the dead, life everlasting. I want you to look back in something that's helpful for this. I want to look at two more things, uh, both brief points. One is this concept of pressing into and what it calls us to. And then the second is a question, a question that's difficult. Of, if we put our hope in the resurrection, what does that mean for our life here in this world? First thing, pressing into. There's a third place that this word, this concept is used in this passage that isn't uh, really recognizable um, for us in in, in reading this in English. Um, But if you look at verse 6 and look at the uh, part of Paul's resume that's maybe the most difficult uh, to to hear, to interpret, verse 6 says, As to zeal, he says he was a, a persecutor, 
of the church. As to zeal, he was a, a persecutor of the church. If you know something of the history of Paul, he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, uh, a Jew among Jews. The Pharisees weren't just hypocrites as we know them today. Pharisees, Pharisees were faithful. They knew God's word. They were careful to obey the letter of the law to, to the nth degree. Some Pharisees uh, decided to follow Jesus uh, during his life and, and even after the resurrection, some Pharisees, but not Paul. Paul. Paul was like the majority of Pharisees and in his zeal to preserve the purity of, of, of the faith, he was persecuting this, this sect, this, uh, this, this cult, this new following of, of Christians as the ones who were not of the church. He was, he was zealous in that. And his example of zeal was the persecution that he did for the church. That is, that he... He was, he was standing by, at least, if he wasn't casting stones themselves at the Christians. He was in the trials, persecuting those who would proclaim the name of Christ. It was an example of his zeal. But to, here's the interesting twist on this, that Paul is using a little bit of a word play because the word persecutor is the same word as pressing on. Paul is pressing into the church and that is an example of his zeal. And then later in the passage, he turns it on the table and now he says, I press on. I press on towards something else to make it my own. That is the resurrection from the dead. I press on to make it my own. I press into, I pursue it with vigor. That's what it means. The word in Greek means I'm pursuing this with all kinds of effort. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we had to have all the other stuff before it before we could look at this because if we just read those two statements, we say, well, Paul just is pressing on to win his, win his resurrection, to win his acceptance before God. I'm pressing on to win the prize the, toward the goal of the prize, the upward call in Christ Jesus. But in the context of everything else around us, what is he pressing in toward? He's pressing in toward understanding what God has done for him, what Jesus Christ has done for him more and more. Elsewhere in the letter, Paul says, he wrestles with this, this difficult question. He says, <coughs> what am I to do? I, I, I want to die because if I die, I'm raised. I'm, I'm with Christ in his perfection. I'm free from the bonds of my sins and the, 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 the habitual things. If I die, I am with Christ, but, but I know that God has called me here for a purpose, he wrestles with. He says, I desire to, to be with Christ, but I also desire to be here. Why? Not so that I can do all kinds of good things to earn God's favor, but because 
but because Paul, like us, has been called into this life. He explains this throughout the letter. And I might preach through Philippians. I'm, I'm still not sure exactly what I'm going to preach on for the next uh, time. But Philippians is so powerful. He says, my call, my call is to enter into suffering for your sake to the Philippians. My call in life is to suffer on behalf of you. He even uses strange, troubling language for us. He says, I'm going to fill up what's lacking in Christ's suffering for your sake. Don't you see how transformative this is? We don't work in order to please God. We don't work so that other people will love us. We have been called into this life. Far better it would be to be raised from the dead, to be with Christ, to be dead in this world and alive with Christ. Alive with Christ. Far better would that be. But we have been called into this life. Paul explains his own purpose, his own mission and our mission in order to suffer on behalf of others for the sake of others that they would also receive this salvation to hear and believe this good news of the gospel. That is the entire purpose of everything we do in life. That is the entire purpose of everything we do in life. Every bit of our work, whether it's paid work or unpaid work, whether it feels satisfying or whether it feels like we're just cleaning the kitchen over and over again. The only reason God leaves us here right now is that many more would be saved. And our work, our call is to suffer for other people so that they would know the surpassing greatness of the salvation that Christ has won for us. And the only way we can keep that in perspective and not be prone to the pride or to to be prone to working so that other people will love us or to be prone to finding our worth in in our work or, or in the way other people love us, the only way to do that effectively is to know the surpassing love of Christ Jesus and the relative worth of all those other things compared to this one thing. For God loved us and suffered for us when we were unlovable. God entered into the world of suffering, not just to say that there's meaning for suffering, but to give us hope that the suffering will end. And an understanding that we've been called to enter into the suffering with Christ for his sake, for the sake of others. As we look back over the last year, let's look at the places that we've succeeded and failed. Let's consider how we might resolve to do better in the coming year. Let's set New Year's resolutions that are filled with hope and power that are gospel-fueled. The desire that our lives would be imitations of Christ. Again, language Paul uses. Imitations of Christ and being willing to suffer alongside of, with, on behalf of other people. Knowing that there is purpose in the work that we do. 
in the place and the places God has put us. I'm still working on the resolution for this new year, and if you have input, I'd be I'd love to hear it. But here's the rough thing, that we would view our work in our lives in this transformative way, that, that, that over the next year we would be equipped to bring this transformative view of what our work means into various places in our lives, in our communities, especially in our vocations, in the, in the civic sphere, that we would see transformation socially and, and culturally around us. It's not just bringing people to the church, but that the truth of what work is And this view of work would have this massive transformative effect on our culture around us, on our city, our leaders' lives and and places. I think it's something that we've we've just begun to kind of crack the surface of in in many ways of how we think of our lives and and our work and our, our relationships and our civic involvement. That's not the only resolution. Commit to physical fitness and commit to fiscal fitness and commit to all of those other things. Those are good and helpful things. But keep this one thing in mind, that Christ has loved you so that you can love him, so that you can suffer, not just for him, but for the sake of the salvation of many around you. take the resolution from the past to know God better and apply that knowledge to every area of every area of our life and take it into this new year with this profound truth of the power of the gospel that has brought salvation to us let's pray oh Lord as the apostle Paul did we set our hope on the resurrection and the promise of that will you help us to see the things you have called us to in new ways that we would press on, press into, pursue with vigor that work that you've called us to, refreshing us every step along the way, that we would be reminded that your love for us is not conditioned on our performance, on our skill set, on our resume, but that your love for us is steadfast, is assured because Jesus has died for us to forgive us of our sins and has risen from the dead to secure for us a place upward, heavenward, with you forever. Make us agents of transformation. Make us ambassadors with the good news of your gospel and your kingdom. And renew our strength as we look to this new year. We ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.